Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this wonderful morning that we can gather together, blessed as we are, in your presence, in the presence of our beloved brothers and sisters today. May we look to your word carefully and consider seriously the nature of the persecuted church around the world. Help us this hour as we study, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is good to see all of you here this morning, and I'm certain that many of you came here today feeling blessed in your life by the blessings of God and how he's worked through you in difficult times. But I'm also certain that many of you here today come with burdens. We feel the burdens of the culture in which we live. We feel the stress and the distress of circumstances in our lives and the way it often weighs down upon us. And then we have Sandy just a moment ago reading to us this letter written to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna, of course, is an ancient church 2,000 years ago. And we read this letter and we recognize that we're really reading somebody else's mail. This is a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago. And so we have a challenge this morning. A challenge to find a way of taking ourselves back into that persecuted, suffering church. And understanding more about what that church was going through and how that might work in our lives today. And so we see this church of Smyrna, and the suffering it goes through. In this passage we see, talks about its poverty, its tribulation, and on and on. So let's go back 2,000 years ago to Smyrna Bible Church. This is a church that was situated in the town of Smyrna. Now we saw last week the beginning of John's uh, apocalypse here, this apocalypse that he wrote, sitting on the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the original copy of this and then produced seven copies because it would be delivered to the seven cities in Asia. Now, these seven cities, the seven churches we understand, but the seven cities were really an ancient postal route that the Romans had. The postal route was for government use. It wasn't for private use, and so John didn't put this into the hands of a government official. And if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that would not have been a good idea anyway. But in it, he puts it uh, into the hands of a courier that takes it first to the church of Ephesus. And we saw Bentley talk about Ephesus last week, that church that lost its first love. And then to Smyrna today, and 
Pergamum next week, which is about 35 miles north of Smyrna. And then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These seven churches occupy the seven great cities of Asia Minor, Anatolia. This was a great continent of people, many of which had now received the gospel. Perhaps after the Apostle Paul established the church in Ephesus, they would begin to branch out. And so our church in Smyrna may have been established by the missionary activity of Ephesus itself. And so we see this church in Smyrna, and they're undergoing great persecution, great suffering. He talks about their poverty and all that they're going through. We think about the suffering they're going through. And then they're told one day, a letter is coming from the Apostle John, and we're going to read it on Sunday. And there must have been some anticipation about what message John would have for this church of Smyrna. What would Jesus say about our suffering? What would Jesus say about those of us who are impoverished, who are persecuted because of our faith in Christ? What message does Jesus have for us? And then the pastor would have stood up that Sunday morning and read. And he would have read this message you just heard. And in it you heard a message of Jesus saying, I know what you're going through. I recognize what you're going through. I've remembered you. I'm with you. But there's no message here saying that this persecution will soon end. Instead, they feel like this persecution may never end. There's no message that Jesus will put an end to this persecution in any imminent time present. And so the church continues to suffer. They continue to endure the hardships of what it meant to be a Christian in Smyrna. And we'll talk about what that means. But what would they have then done? They may have then gone back to where they were, thinking of their suffering, not in simply practical terms, but in theological terms. What it meant to think theologically about the suffering that they were enduring. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi about 35 years before this church of Smyrna received this letter from John. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's those words that Paul wrote to the Philippian church to talk about what it meant to be thinking theological about suffering. He writes there, To have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even as a man. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. With those words, Paul explained theologically that when Jesus comes to us, those who are suffering, he comes to us as one who says, I know what you're going through. Jesus underwent great suffering himself. And so in this verse we read in, in chapter 2, verse 8, it says these words to, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the messenger, the pastor of the church of Smyrna. I am the first and the last. He who died and came to life. Jesus is the one who died and came to life. And just as every Sunday morning in the first hour, we recognize and remember the death of Christ, we also celebrate the glory of his resurrection on top of that. And so the church at Smyrna had to think about all that Christ went through, recognizing that they're going through many of the same things. It's just what life is. And so they recognize now that the purpose of this letter from Jesus, this message from Jesus, is not to tell them that their suffering will soon end. It's instead to tell them that there's a purpose in your suffering. It's to give them a message to be prepared for persecution, to be prepared for suffering, 
to be prepared for martyrdom, to die because of your Christian faith. And so we think about this church in Smyrna. Now, we have this church here in Littleton, which is a lovely community. And none of us here came today being prohibited by any government official from worshiping this morning. All of you came freely of your own will to be here this morning. Unless, of course, your spouse forced you to come, then you may have been here under coercion. But for the rest of us, we come freely to worship, and we have that privilege in this city, in this country still presently. But if you go back to ancient Smyrna and learn about its world and its culture, we see something about what that church would have had to go through. So let me tell you a little bit about Smyrna. The name Smyrna itself comes from a Greek word, which means myrrh. It's the Ionic Greek word. And so the idea of myrrh, and you know what myrrh is, it's that tarry substance that was used for uh, embalming a body. In fact, Egypt was a great importer of myrrh from Smyrna. The myrrh that was brought to Jesus and in use in his own death may also have come from Smyrna itself. They exported the myrrh. And so Smyrna always had this idea of being associated with the myrrh that they had nearby. But Smyrna itself was a very significant city. It sat on the western edge of what's called Anatolia, the western edge of modern-day Turkey. And on its western edge, it could look west further to Greece. And so it was only a short boat ride from Athens to Smyrna. And so Smyrna became a city that had a lot of commercial traffic going back and forth. Archaeologists now see that Smyrna may have been founded 3000 B.C., much earlier than previously thought. And that's rather recent, that discovery. But we've known that at least Smyrna existed from 1000 B.C. It would have claimed as one of its patrons, one of its hometown heroes, the great Greek poet Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So it had great pride in the people that came from Smyrna. It was founded in 1000 B.C. and survived for about 400 years before in the year 600 B.C., the Lydians, people that lived inland on Turkey, came and conquered and destroyed it. And so the city was destroyed in about 680 B.C. and lay basically in ruins, which is a small village there, for about 400 years. And then 400 years later, about the year 280 B.C., after the great Alexander the Great came through, and rebuilt the city, planned to rebuild it. His general Lysimachus did rebuild it. And so Smyrna was rebuilt. And they had in their, eye, their mind their motto that we were a city that was once dead, but has now come alive. And so when Jesus says that I'm the one who is once dead, but now alive, Jesus was now usurping or kind of taking over their motto. He's saying, no, I'm the one who was once dead, but now come alive, you see. And so Smyrna was now a city again, and it began to grow. It had the Persian influence, then it had the Greek influence. But eventually, the Romans would rise in Italy. And Smyrna made a wise political decision to join itself and ally itself with Rome. And it turned out to be pretty fortuitous for them. Because Smyrna then became a great Roman colony, a great Roman city. Cicero, the great poet, would say that Smyrna is our greatest jewel in in Anatolia. It was recognized for its greatness. In the year 195 BC, now 200 years or 300 years before this letter is written, Smyrna itself decided to dedicate a temple to the goddess Roma. And it was the first of the temples to Roma, recognizing Rome. And this was done so that it could ally itself even closer with Rome itself, the Republic of Rome. Time would pass and they would establish many other temples the temples to Artemis and Aphrodite and Apollo, Dionysus 
Zeus. And so in Smyrna, along this great edge where there's this inlet, there was a mountain called Pagos. And on Mount Pagos, there were all of these temples up there. When you came into the, the harbor of Smyrna, you would see these temples. And they called it the great crown of Asia. All these temples on the hill of Pagos, about 1,200 feet high. And so Smyrna was recognized for its allegiance to Rome. Time would pass. The Roman Republic would pass to the emperors with Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and then eventually Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome when Jesus is crucified. And in the year 26, about the same time Jesus begins his act of ministry, in the year 26, Smyrna makes another step towards Roman allegiance and establishes a temple to Tiberius himself. This was part of what was called the great imperial cult. The Romans began to worship their emperors, and they would build this, these temples to their emperors. And this is something that Caesar Augustus, you know from the New Testament, Caesar Augustus got from the Egyptians with the pharaohs who became gods when they died. He got from Alexander the Great, who would become a god when he died. And so when there's this idea floating around out there that you can be an emperor, you can be a pharaoh, you can have great dictatorial power, and when you die, become a god, that would give you greater prestige on earth while you're alive. And so the Romans sort of picked up this idea. It's called the apotheosis. They're a sent up into heaven after they died. And so the temple of Tiberius was built in Smyrna in about the year 26, and it tied itself to Rome even further. We move down into our time. About 70 years later, about the year 95 is when John would have written the book of Revelation about when this letter would have arrived in their hands. So in the year 95, it comes. And by then, we have a proconsul in Smyrna who would hold games. They would hold games in which they would basically kill whatever needed to be killed for fun. But one thing they made sure you did, if you were to be a citizen of Smyrna, you had to give your allegiance to the Roman emperor. And so you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, of course, for a Christian, they couldn't say that. Jesus is Lord, we know. But they were forced to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord, you may not be able to engage in the economic activity of the city. If you said Jesus, if you said Caesar is Lord, they would give you a certificate that said you have given your allegiance to Rome, to Caesar himself. Now, this is a pagan world in which there's many gods. And so for the Romans, it didn't seem that problematic to say that you have your own household gods. You have this polytheistic world in which there's many different gods. You have gods of the forest, gods of the rain, gods of the river, gods of the mountains, household, family gods. You would give your allegiance to all your gods. All they asked for you to do was to give allegiance one more time to Caesar. And if you did, you could engage yourself in the activity of this pagan world, this pagan city. And so you got this certificate. Now imagine living in a world in which you had to get a certificate from the government in order to work and have your job and have a career. That's what they had to have in this first century. And so no Christian could say, Caesar is Lord. And so the people of Smyrna, you know why they're poor? They couldn't work. They couldn't engage in the economic activity. They could set up a booth, I suppose, a kiosk somewhere and try and sell their wares. 
But the pagans would never buy from a Christian any more than you would want to buy from an atheist if you had somebody, a believer, to buy from. And so the people of Smyrna, the Christians of Smyrna, suffered dearly for their Christian faith. And that's who this church is. And that's what they're undergoing. That's the struggles they have. Now, in our passage today, I've broken this down into the serving church, the suffering church, and the surviving church. We have the church serving in a hostile world. And this is the church of Smyrna serving Christ himself in this hostile world. What it meant to be a Christian, we better think about what that means. But we see also there's a church suffering in a hostile world. Notice again in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He talks about their tribulation. The word tribulation here, philipsis, is a word which means pressure. It's, it's when you have something, a platform of some kind, upon which greater weight is placed. Greater pressure is, is pushed upon this plank. And in your own life, the imagery here is of greater weights, greater suffering come upon you. Issue after issue, matter after matter, suffering comes upon us. And so what are they going through? He talks first about their poverty. Their poverty. There's a couple of Greek words for poverty. One word used here is tokia, as opposed to penia. Now, penia is a person who's just kind of normal poor. A, a, purple with penia, a person with penia poverty can buy food, can do things. They just don't have a lot of spending money left over. They're poor. But a person suffering tokia is almost like a homeless person that literally has no resources available to them. So they suffer with great poverty. And so when John writes to this church, he says, Jesus says, again, Jesus says, I recognize your extreme poverty. And I know why you're poor. You're poor because you say Jesus is Lord and you don't confess Caesar is Lord. And that's the great thing that we see, their faithfulness. So we see that they are poor. But then he says also, notice he's a parenthesis, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So on the one hand, I know physically and economically you're very poor. I'm not ignoring that. But I'm reminding you that you're also rich. Rich how? Rich, of course, when we're positionally in Christ. We know what it means to be in Christ, to enjoy the riches of what it means to be a believer forgiven of your sin. And so the church at Smyrna would have felt that, that richness that they had. So many years ago, I went to the island of Haiti. And I, was meeting, I met some missionaries down there, and they took me around to a variety of Haitian villages where I would preach. And I had an interpreter, and so I preached you know, a, a sentence, and then he did a sentence, and I did a sentence, and went back and forth. And I went around to about 20 different little village churches around and preached about 20 times that week. And when I did, I saw people coming from their hovels, from their, their shacks, all to sit there on a hillside and hear some American preacher. And I couldn't help but notice how poor they were. And even so many years later, after billions and billions of dollars have been poured into Haiti, Haiti, they're still greatly impoverished. I saw their poverty. But when you saw their faces, you knew the riches that they knew they had. They knew what it meant to be rich in Christ. They sang with joy. They celebrated the Christian message with joy. And so that's what we're seeing in the Smyrna church, that's why Jesus says to them, I know you're poor, but you're rich. Don't forget that. You're rich. 
And then he continues on and says, And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In this passage, he talks about those who are slandering them. The word blasphemy, blaspheming you. And this is a problem they had. In this city of Smyrna, there was uh, a time as years have passed from the, the crucifixion, resurrection, the church gets started in 30 A.D., and now we're 65 years later, the church has spread. And early on, there was a confluence of Judaism and Christianity. They were seen as essentially the same thing. The Christian followers, the Jesus followers, were a part of the Jewish religion. It was understood by the Romans. And when that happened, the Romans allowed both the Jews and the Christians to kind of live in peace. Uh, that was because the Romans recognized the antiquity of the Jewish religion. It predated Rome itself. Rome was established in 753 B.C. The Jewish religion goes back way further to the time of Abraham. And so the Romans recognized the Jews because of its antiquity. And the Christians enjoyed the shelter for a number of years. When the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., there began, even before that, but a separation between the Jews and the Christians, where the Jews were, where the first the Christians were saying, look, we're not the ones who caused the uprising of Jerusalem, so don't blame us for that. That was the Jews. That's not us. That was the Jews. And so the Jews would now say among the Christians, look, they're not some of us. And so there began this animosity between the ancient Jews and the ancient Christians, this separation between them, as the church became more and more Gentile. And that's because the message of Paul was that the gospel itself isn't limited to the Jews only, but extends to all those who believe, including the Gentiles. And so Christianity begins to grow. And the Jews in Smyrna tried to maintain their own safety, their own place, would side with the Romans against the Christians. And they would slander, blaspheme it says. And what it means here is this. How do the Jews slander Christians? Well, they would say on the one hand that Christians are cannibals. We're cannibals. Why? Well, because we know every Sunday morning they get together and they partake of the body of Christ. They eat the body of Christ. They, eat, they drink the blood of Jesus. Therefore, they're cannibals. And the Romans would say, oh my gosh, even Romans don't do that. They would also blaspheme them in this way. Christians get together and we're used to calling each other brother and sister. So we have that sense among ourselves that we are in Christ brothers and sisters. Well, the Romans would hear that. In Rome, in the Roman world, there was a great emphasis placed on the family. The father of the family, the paterfamilias, the father of the family was the man. And his daughters and sons were owned by him. Until the daughters were married off and they would go to a different family. But the sons were owned by the father as long as he was alive. And those were your brothers and sisters. But when Christians got together and said, no, this is my brother. This is my sister. That was taken by others to say, I'm repudiating my family. And so this is another reason that they were blasphemed. Christians were seen to be repudiating their own family. And therefore the Romans came against them. And so suffering would pursue. Again, in this passage, it talks and it says, they are a synagogue of Satan. Where the Jews rejected the great message of the gospel in Christ, they were now abandoned and seen to be a synagogue that was now doing the work of Satan himself and not of God himself any longer. And then it continues in verse 10, where Jesus says to the Smyrna church, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
some of you will be thrown into prison. Now, we read that. Perhaps we think that they're being jailed for a term because of their Christian belief. And it really wasn't like that. They had prisons in the ancient world. The Romans had many prisons. The Mamertine prison in Rome is where Peter and Paul would suffer execution. But the prisons were really rat-infested holes in the ground. Your custodians, the Roman guards, had no obligation to feed you and care for you. If a prisoner was to eat, your friends and family would have to bring it to you. And the only way, the only reason the Romans would ever feed and keep you alive is because they were planning for a very glorious execution and they wanted to keep you alive for that purpose. And so if you were charged with something, charged with murder, charged with robbery, charged with being one who refuses to acknowledge Caesar, you could be put into prison. Now, they needed no probable cause. They could just do this as will. And there was no right to speedy trial. So you could languish in a prison for many, many years without ever being brought to trial. And so you could suffer this without ever having to face your accusers and have a chance to get your name cleared. Nobody's name was ever cleared. You were kept in prison until you're convicted. And then, if necessary, you were flogged. If it was worse, they may execute you. But you were not sentenced to a prison term of five years or of ten years. That didn't enter anybody's mind. They had no place to house people like that. It was easier just to execute them. And so when Jesus talks to this church and says that some of you will be imprisoned, that was a terrifying idea. Imagine being put into a a rat-infested Roman dungeon with no accountability for how long you might be there. They knew that this was very severe. And you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. The 10 days here is taken by some who interpret it very literally to be that there will be an actual 10-day period, like from February 1 to February 10, where there will be this great persecution of the Church of Smyrna. Some take it very literally, and that doesn't seem to make sense. Others take it in a more symbolic way to talk about 10 great persecutions. And you can kind of enumerate and go through them. Uh, beginning at the time of, of, uh, of Nero, and then working way through Trajan and Hadrian, and on down to Decius and Diocletian. There's a number of periods in Roman history where we could say there's a persecution that comes on the church. And so they take it to mean that, and that seems kind of speculative. Instead, this 10-day period it's talking about probably is speaking of a, a period of time that's a time of duration, but it's not of infinite duration. There's a time in which this church will suffer, but a time in which it will also come to an end. And so there's that recognition that suffering is coming, and you will endure it, but it will come to an end. And we find out it may come to an end in their own death. That's how your suffering comes to an end. If you are in prison, you only hope that you might die and not have to live in a prison. And so the Smyrna church endured this. Now we think about this suffering. What's the purpose of suffering in this world? The Smyrna church was perhaps, I would think, expecting a hopeful message from Jesus that there's an end to this suffering coming. And there wasn't. Now, again, Revelation was written about the year 95. Uh, Some 35 years before, Peter wrote also to the church and those who were suffering. And let me just read a few words from 1 Peter chapter 4, in which Peter wrote to churches who were also undergoing suffering. And Peter writes... 
Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or as a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. When Peter talks about this trial they're going through, this strenuous trial, the word he uses there is purimai, which we get our word purify from. It's a fiery trial. And this fiery trial imagery was used not only by Peter, it will be used not only when John writes to the church of Laodicea, but it was used also by other early church fathers who talk about the martyrdom and suffering the Christians went through. And they describe it as a purifying sort of experience not only for the church, but also for a person's own individual faith and soul. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, talks about the fiery trial your faith is undergoing. Now think about what this means. If you take your faith and conceive of it as, as, as a blob of something, there's that part of your faith which is pure, that part of your faith which is fully devoted to Christ and to God, and you know for certain that Jesus is your Savior, and there's nothing that will ever separate you from that. But our faith is also probably an amalgam of many other things. So, for example, if I say, I have faith and confidence that God will supply my every need, including my meal in the next hour, I can say I'm trusting God for that, but there's also an element of my mind that says, I know I'll have a meal because I've already got a cooking. I've already got money saved aside. And so in our faith, in our confidence in God, it's often conglomerated with a bunch of other elements. And so you think of like gold or, or silver ore. And we heard a reference uh, earlier today from uh, Ezekiel where there's that reference to the purifying nature of silver. And so you take silver ore and you put it in a furnace. And you heat that furnace to about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Calculate this Celsius if you want. But 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And when you do, that silver ore begins to separate. And the silver separates from the dross. The silver separates pure on the one side. And that which is burned up and consumed is gone on the other. And so it's separated that way. And our faith does the same thing. It's only, and none of us know sitting here today how we will live under great persecution. And it's only under great suffering that you really find out. Now, all of us today sitting here, I believe, trust that, that through suffering, God would give us strength. And that we're not trusting in anything else. We're not trusting in our, in our good looks, in our 401k. We're not trusting in our status or our prestige or whatever it may be. But we're trusting wholly in God. But if you undergo great persecution and great suffering, then you will find out what you're really made of. You'll find out that's what you're really committed to. And just as the silver and the dross begin to separate, you see what burns up. Now, many people in their own lives, they come and they say, oh, I believe in God. They undergo suffering. They undergo something difficult. And they say, how can I believe in a God who does this? How can I believe in a God who takes away my job? How can I believe in a God who takes away my children? Those are the questions we face. 
And that's where we find out we're really made of. You, and you see not only what you're made of, but what really does count. Because you will find out that those other things never really did matter. So they're gone now. They're evaporated. And we no longer need to have confidence in them. And so when we undergo trials in life, we need to recognize that those trials are really there to be merciful to us. To give us a moment to think about what is it we really trust in. Who is it we really have confidence in? Where is our trust really placed? And so the message that this church this morning gets is a message that says, make sure your trust and confidence is fully in Christ and what he's done for you. And then you can endure this suffering. The Bible uses a number of images also to speak of suffering. The fiery trial is one. We've seen in Hebrews where there's a discussion of a a coach and an athlete. A, A coach puts an athlete through the paces to try and make them a better athlete, to make them stronger and faster. And you see this coach yelling at your high school kid, oh, the coach is so mean. That coach is trying to make your kid a better athlete, a better person. And it's harsh, but you don't get to that higher level unless you undergo the harshness of hard training. You think of Jesus in in John chapter 15. John there talks about these words of Jesus of the vine dresser and says that uh, God is the the, the vine dresser and, and I'm the vine. And those who were dead vines will be pruned away and cut off and cast into the fire. But those that are vines that produce fruit, what's he say? They will be pruned. Well, even a a productive, fruitful vine is pruned. Have you ever seen a good gardener pruning away? Some years ago, I knew a lady. Her name was uh, Beth. uh, And she had the most beautiful rose garden. And I went over visiting her, sitting with her. This elderly lady, probably 75 years old or older, she's walking through, precariously through her garden of roses, And she had these beautiful roses, and she'd go out there and start snipping away, snipping away, snipping away. And you think, oh, my goodness, she's destroying her garden. Well, she knew what she was doing. She was clipping away those buds that didn't matter so that more strength could go to the one that does. And that's what the vine dresser does. That's what God does to us. Now, who would, of us, volunteer and say, oh, Lord, I want you to make me a better person. Come and prune away. None of us enjoy the pruning part, but that's what suffering does. It puts us in that place where we can now grow and become a more faithful Christian, a more confident Christian, one who knows more about that in which we trust. A vine dresser prunes away so that the vine becomes more fruitful. There was a pastor in Smyrna about the time that John wrote a man named Polycarp. The name Polycarp means many poly fruits, karpos. Polycarp was a man of many fruits. That was his name. Polycarp was born in the year 69. And so when this letter arrived from John, he would have been about 26 years old. And Polycarp may very well have been the pastor of this church in Smyrna. He may very well have been the angel that this verse 8 talks about, the pastor of Smyrna. Now, Polycarp goes down in history as one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. And I just want to tell you a short story about who Polycarp was. Polycarp was a man who was born a slave. Polycarp was a man adopted now by a woman named Callisto, and she adopts him 
and she trains him in the Christian faith. And he places his faith in Christ. He begins to read and memorize scripture. He begins to grow in the faith. And then he becomes a pastor. Polycarp was a man we hear was one of those men of great powerful presence. Irenaeus of Lyon, which is in France, would write about his friend Polycarp. Irenaeus came from Smyrna, knew Polycarp, and he would say Polycarp was one of those men who would look at you and talk, and he would tilt his head slightly and speak with such a gravelly voice. You would hear Polycarp talk, and you knew that you were hearing something important. So Polycarp was that kind of a man. We hear from another church father, Ignatius. Ignatius one day was himself being charged with sedition for being a Christian. And he was brought from Syria all the way across Asia Minor, all the way to Smyrna. He wrote letters to the churches all the way through. And he met with Polycarp when he got to Smyrna. And Ignatius talks also about the great man that Polycarp was. Now, Ignatius would go on to be crucified in Rome. He was now dead. Polycarp would live and preach, and lead this church in Smyrna for many years. In the year 155 AD, we get down the road much further. There's a day that came when now the proconsul decided that we're going to have some games. And so they would have games, and 20,000 people would gather together and, and celebrate game day. And this meant first taking wild beasts and, and having them hunted in the, in the arena. And we would cheer as these animals would be tortured and killed. And then the gladiators would fight. In Pergamum, there was a school of, for the gladiators. And they would be brought down to Smyrna where they would fight. And the 20,000 throng would all celebrate as these gladiators would delim each other and, and denogonize each other and, and kill each other. And then the criminals would be brought out, the murderers. Those who had stolen, the robbers, and those who had committed sedition like Polycarp who would not say Caesar is Lord. And so Polycarp is brought before the proconsul. The proconsul said simply, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp says, I won't do that. And it was unbelievable. Why won't you just say the words Caesar is Lord? And Polycarp said, 80 and 6 years, 86 years, he's been faithful to me and never abandoned me. How can I now deny my Savior Jesus himself. So Polycarp makes that statement. And eventually it was recognized that Polycarp would never say these words. And so he was ordered to be executed. And they built a, a fire, a place for him to be burned, and a stake. And he was brought to the stake, and they would nail him to the stake. And he said, you don't have to do that. I'll be, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'll stand here. And so we read as he stands there, and as the flames begin to develop and, and envelop him, there's a story that a miraculous event happened where the flames would come around him but would not burn him. And so after a time, in fact, the, the martyr in the Polycarp, which you can read in this book, the Antinocene Fathers, talks about it and says he stood there and it looked like he was baked like bread but wouldn't burn. And so they ordered a soldier to go out and stab him. Now Polycarp, the night before this happened, told his friends, I had a dream last night. I was sleeping and on my pillow a fire was lit. I know that I'm going to die that way. And so he was stabbed, he died, and eventually he was uh, burned. And his bones were taken, his burned bones. And, and in Smyrna, for many years after that, there was this recognition of the great man Polycarp. They didn't talk about the day of his death. 
which is February of 155, they talked about the day of his birth. That was his birthday, you see. Because now they knew Polycarp was with Jesus himself. That's what Polycarp did. That's what it meant to be a Christian in Smyrna. Now, we think today about what it means to be a Christian in Littleton. It's not as challenging as it used to be. In just a moment, we're going to show a video, again, from the voice of the martyrs. We saw one in the first hour, and here's a second one. And as we do, I'm going to tell you now, it has uh, some graphic depiction of what it means to be a Christian being persecuted in Syria. And so if you're uncomfortable with that or want to walk your children out, feel free to do that. You have about two minutes. But this video is going to show what it means to be a Christian in Syria today, what it takes. Please watch this. We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country. But we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, In the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill. Where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, We are like living in hell. One day, while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, Are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door. Men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. 
But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. We should just close our eyes, and when we open them, we will be with Jesus. Am I a good mother to have to tell my children such things? I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe, that He is in control, even during the bloodshed. During the killing, he is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. once said that if Christianity is not true, then it's of no importance. If Christianity is true, then it's of utmost importance. But what it can never be is of moderate importance. And the people of Syria know that. The Christians around the world, in Syria, in China, in so many Muslim countries, know that it matters what you say. It matters how you believe. Will you stand with me as we dismiss in prayer? Our Father, as we sit here this morning in our comfort, we do pray for those persecuted Christians around the world, those Christians who suffer greatly because of their faith. May they be an encouragement to us to be faithful also, a recognition that cost comes by confessing Christ where they're at. So, Lord, give us that courage, that boldness, for it's in Christ's name we pray.